that really was a pivotal inflection point in my life. It was moving to North America. It was a sudden realization that I'm not the center of the universe anymore. I'm not part of the majority. That I'm perceived as a minority, as an Asian American, and with positive and negative experiences. And it was that experience, and then the recognition that you know I had had some privileges as being part of a majority, but had never reflected on it in that way till I was perceived as a minority. It was that that brought me to the work I did, both my research as well as the jobs I took, the careers that I pursued. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Dr. Rohini Anand is founder and CEO of Rohini Anand LLC, providing diversity, equity and inclusion advisory services to clients in the public and private sectors. She is a strategic business leader and trusted board member who has successfully transformed cultures and built an iconic brand with an enduring reputation, resulting in accelerating new business creation. With expertise that spans executive leadership, human capital, global corporate responsibility, wellness and diversity, equity and inclusion, Rohini brings a unique perspective on the critical alignment of the business culture and the triple bottom line to drive exceptional performance. Recognised as a pioneer in her field, Rohini is a much lauded and sought after global expert. Her experience, cultural dexterity, extensive network and ability to influence leaders has resulted in a reputation for judgment, integrity and accountability. Rohini's upcoming book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, a guide for systemic change in multinational organisations, will be available from the 30th of November and is available for pre-order right now. I grew up in Mumbai, India, and I went to an international school, so was in school with people from all over the world, which was wonderful. Many, many Americans, actually. So my exposure to the U.S. was fairly early, Americans and Canadians. And I grew up sort of surrounded by others who looked like me. I belonged to the majority religion, so was very much a part of the majority. And growing up in India, as part of the majority, I didn't have to think about my identity. So I had the privilege of not having to think about my identity. Um, which you know, I hadn't reflected on it in that way as it being a privilege. I was very aware of my education level, my class privilege, but it was not till I moved to the U.S., to North America, which was really an inflection point in my journey. And when I was identified as a minority, as an mm. Asian American, and learned to identify myself as such, that I really recognized the privileges that I had had as being part of a majority. So that really was sort of the start of my journey and the work that I did that 
you know, was an inflection point in my life. But growing up in India was very sort of a unfettered, happy childhood with friends from all over the world and exposure to different parts of the world. That's what was so wonderful about the school that I went to. What were you like as a student? Were you hardworking? Were you a bit <laughs> cheeky? What were you like? What did you enjoy studying as well? Interesting. I know I didn't enjoy math. <laughs> so it was more, I was always drawn more to the arts and the humanities. And, you know, growing up, I, I actually toyed between, and I loved gardening. So toyed between having a farm and uh, growing vegetables. And for some reason, I was fascinated with growing mushrooms. Um, <laughs> so I'm not quite sure why. Quite unusual, yeah. It was the gardening and, you know, Mumbai is a city, so there's not much place to garden, but that was something that I loved and writing. So literature, the humanities, writing. So I kind of toggled between doing something in, in the realm of farming and horticulture and between doing social work. So even as a young girl, I spent a lot of time going to the slums okay. and working with um, you're making me think about all these things that I haven't for a very long time, but working with in what they called a rescue home. So it was okay. young women who had either committed petty crimes or had been abandoned by their families because they had had children out of wedlock. So I would actually go there a couple of times a week and work with them. And I remember getting these calls in the middle of the night from some of the women. I'm not sure how they access the phone in those days to call but you know basically saying that they were trying to escape and could I help them and this kind wow. of thing so I was always inclined towards doing things for people and supporting people why were you why were you particularly drawn to that do you think was it something in your nature was yeah, were people I, around you particularly kind what was it that drew you to it it's a great question so I'm not sure I think it was probably part of who I was to a very large extent and that's really what I leaned into even in my work and as an adult the work that I do today is around creating inclusive equitable workplaces for people and allowing mm. everyone to reach their full potential so it's very much in the same vein you know to eradicate inequities I think it was probably partly in my nature partly it was hard to ignore right growing up in India when there's so much poverty around you mm. it's hard to kind of close your eyes to that so it was both of those things I think it was the context the environment I don't know I mean you're making me think I'm, I don't think there were any exceptional role models in that space but I could say that really you know my parents were always very giving but I don't think it was an exceptional kind mm. of role model so what was your first job out of education then? You went to university. And I did. And I did all kinds of odd jobs while going to university in North America, from being a hostess at a restaurant. And you When know, did you move to America? How old were you when you moved there? I was actually 19. Oh, okay. So I was single. And at the time, very few Indian women, single women, moved to North America to study. So I was one of the few at University of Michigan. The interesting thing was that my father had, come to the United States in the 1940s on a scholarship. You know, he had a, a scholarship to study film and he had never even seen a camera in his life. <laughs> never had one. 
and he went to University of Southern California on a scholarship and went on to work in Hollywood for a while with the likes of Gary Grant and he has you know some amazing pictures with him. He had his own experiences. He traveled through the U.S. South and had his experiences of being discriminated and told to you know they couldn't serve him, etc. But he never passed that on to me. So he always encouraged me to to study. So I was 19 when I came to North America, and my first job. So I did my PhD and actually my first job was doing international marketing for international Playtex. Okay. Did you enjoy so that? I did. I liked the global nature of the work very much. And it was a very female friendly environment. And I enjoyed that tremendously. So yeah, I mean, what amazed me was, you know, the time you had female products. So there were basically intimate products being made for women. And they, you had these men in their late 60s who were designing them. <laughs> they were sort of product engineers. But anyway, so I enjoyed, I did enjoy that first job that I had. And I also taught. So I did, actually, my first job was probably teaching before I got the international playtex job. So it was in academia teaching at university and schools. And explain to me your career trajectory from there, because mm-hmm. you then, you've obviously had an 18 year career at Sodexco. Mm-hmm. You know, explain the peaks right. and troughs and all else in between of how you came to work for them. Yeah, so I think, you know, the international data, so I was in academia and taught, and that's always been something that I've kind of dabbled in, but nothing that I really wanted to pursue seriously. It was when I worked at International Playtex, the corporate world opened up to me when I did sort of a mini MBA and then traveled and followed my husband around and had kids and I taught wherever we went. But it was when we were back in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area that I seriously pursued my career and started working for a nonprofit that was doing consulting in the space in the diversity, equity, and inclusion, multicultural space for hospitals and educational institutions, et cetera. And I actually set up their consulting practice. They had conferences and I set up their consulting practice for them. And from there, the Sodexo opportunity opened up, which was pretty amazing because it was in my backyard. I met the CEO and we hit it off. Michelle Londell was the CEO. And 30 minutes into the conversation, I knew I wanted to work for him because he was such a committed leader. You know, they told me that they'd let me know in a couple of weeks, but by the end of the day, he made me the offer. And it was an incredible opportunity because it's a company with 460,000 employees in over 80 countries, very much of a microcosm of a global society. So my career sort of, you know, and I started off reporting into HR and then within a year was reporting to the CEO and then the global CEO. So my career was very much, you know, it went from academic. So basically the work that I chose to do was very much a reflection of my lived experience. It was my experience moving to North America, the inflection point in my life, my experiencing being a minority that made me realize that I wanted to level the playing field for people in the workplace. You know, I had had experiences that led me to that. And so it was my research was based on that. My PhD research was based on 
movement of people. It was about identity and multiculturalism, as was the work that I chose to do, both in a nonprofit environment and then in a corporate environment. And you have a book out, which we'll talk about that a little bit more mm-hmm. in, in a minute. But there's a lovely anecdote. I had the pleasure of having a bit of a preview to the book. Uh-huh. Well, you're, you're with Sodexo and you're talking to a group of daughter-in-laws in India and you catch yourself, don't you? And I think you relay saying you'd forgotten your own limitations as a multi-dimensional being and a, and a person. And you thought you should focus on the thing that might connect you, which you'd anticipated was language. But it wasn't that. It was the sense that these were daughter-in-laws living with their Mm mother-in-laws who wanted them to go home and still be homemakers and parents and what have you. And you actually said yourself, you were applying your own one-dimensional worldview and it was a journey of self-discovery for you. So for experiences like that and being exposed to those kinds of things in your role must have been invaluable, really, and really fed into your own experiences. Absolutely. I think it's just so easy to approach situations with a one-dimensional worldview. And you sort of have to work on yourself and do the hard work of introspection if you're going to influence and change others. Mm -hmm. and do the work of transformation, both for people and for processes and systems. And when I started writing this book, Kim, I I actually was going to write a how-to book. And as I started writing, I realized that what was far more interesting was the mistakes that I had made, the lessons that I had learned, and my own growth through the process. You know, I went through my own journey because ultimately change happens at the intersection of the personal and the systemic or systems, so the individual and the systems. And it's that change that is more lasting. So in order to do any of this work and influence people, you really have to go through. And and I was constantly catching myself. When I started working with my French colleagues, again, I realized that I was approaching this topic with a very, very US lens where issues of black and white and race are very predominant Mm. in the United States in the context of potent racism, the historical context of potent racism in the US. And it took me a while to realize that the reality is very different in Europe and in France, where issues of race and racism are not addressed in the same way. In fact, the word race was struck from the French constitution in 2018. Wow. Um, Yeah, so... You know, they do not identify people based on community identities, but on more objective criteria. And the genesis is from the Holocaust, because the Jewish population was identified and they never wanted to make that mistake again. So, yeah, I mean, I think that my whole life has been catching myself. I'll share a, a funny story with you. So I have a daughter who's married, and when we went to visit her, her partner, her husband, actually cooked up this incredible eight-course Ethiopian meal. Eight and the course. only thing he—it was just amazing. The only thing he bought from outside was an, it was Anjira, and he's you know a local Chicago boy. So we, you know, we had a great time. We enjoyed it. He cooked it, he served it, and then he was cleaning up. And I was very uncomfortable. So when we went to the other room, my daughter said to me, "She says, Mom, you were really uncomfortable, weren't you?" I said, "Yeah." I should have been helping. You should have been helping. I was just sitting there chatting with you. 
And so she said, well, if it was a woman who was doing that and a man sitting and talking to you, I don't think you would have felt the same sense of discomfort. So I said, yeah, what do I know? I'm just the chief diversity officer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Switch of roles completely. You you have to switch language, switch roles in order to really realize how pervasive some of this conditioning is. Yeah. And your book is all about these cultural nuances and how to navigate them, really. It's called Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, a Guide for Systemic Change in Multinational Organisations, which sounds amazingly useful. But um, the book offers five proven principles, right? So organisations can advance diversity, equity and inclusion with an understanding of the context in which Mm -hmm. they're operating. Where do you even start with something like that? I mean, it sounds like you've obviously got a lot of anecdotal lived experience, but when it comes to sitting down and trying to convey and express all of that on paper, how do you even start that process? Yeah, I think, you know, what happened was that as I started doing this, I realized that there's no recipe, there's no cookbook for doing this work globally because, Mm. you know, contexts are just so, so very different. But what I realized when I reflected on what I had done, because the sense of accomplishment, it was sort of like a capstone and for me, a legacy thing, because the transformation that we had been able to bring about in the organization was so tremendous. When I joined, there was a very serious lawsuit. And I like to say we went from class action to best in class because we were sort of perceived as leaders. But as I started reflecting, I realized that there were some principles that provide a through line in this work. And those are the five principles that I draw on in terms of providing a through line that can then be customized to any mm. any environment, any context. Yeah. And we obviously want people to read the book, but to summarize, it's make it local, leaders change to lead change, and it's good business too. So the rationale for change, go deep, wide and inside out and know what matters and count it. So longevity. So those are the guiding principles, but please go and read the book. <laughs> That's what we want people to do, isn't it? To just digest all of this because it is a working practice and it sounds like something that you've committed your life to investing in. And, and I'm, the only thing I will add to that, Kim, is that very often people say that when you talk about make it local, does it mean accepting local inequities? No, it doesn't. It basically means understanding the context mm. and then working with local change agents to push for change and to disrupt the status quo. And I think as outsiders, sometimes you have a different perspective and you can infuse that different perspective into a local context and bring some fresh ideas. As I mentioned, when I was growing up in India, I didn't realize the privileges that I had growing up as part of a majority till my context changed, Mm. till I was perceived as a minority and learned to recognize myself as such. It was then that I really reflected on the privileges that I had had as being part of a majority. So I think having an outsider perspective is extremely valuable in disrupting the status quo. Do you think that recognition of your difference, I suppose, was a standout moment for you? I normally ask people on this podcast, Mm -hmm. what is that standout moment that helped mould your interests or shape your own career or personal life? Was that that moment for you, would you say? Absolutely. That really was a pivotal inflection point in my life. It was moving to North America it was a sudden realization that I'm not the center of the universe anymore. I'm not part of the majority. 
that I'm perceived as a minority, as an Asian American, and with positive and negative experiences. And it was that experience and then the recognition that, you know, I had had some privileges as being part of a majority, but had never reflected on it in that way till I was perceived as a minority. It was that that brought me to the work I did, both my research as well as the jobs I took, the careers that I pursued. So, yes. And you've been the recipient of so many accolades, including the Mosaic Woman Leadership Award, the Women's Food Service Forum Trailblazer Award, Webster University's Women of Influence Award, the Who's Who in Asian American Communities Award, amongst many, many other things. But what are you particularly proud of? What stands out for you? So, I mean, for me, what I'm most proud of is having changed the culture in a massive organization to the point where individuals within that organization actually share that they would never have had the careers they had, had that culture not changed. So it was working with leaders because you can change processes, you can change policies, you can change systems, but it's when you change leaders' mindsets and behaviors and give them those experiences that really shift their perspective. I think it's then that you really begin to experience true change because when they internalize the importance of allowing everyone to live their full potential. Um, so it was really changing the culture in a massive organization. And it's individuals who then were able to say that, look, you know, we had some amazing careers at this organization, but would never have been able to if the culture had not changed. So that to me is a big one because it impacted people's lives and careers, which is what I wanted. And I think the other big one was really sort of impacting and influencing thought leadership in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. So it would be those two things, which, you know, which is the book, right? Yeah. So it would be those two things it's not the accolades those are wonderful but it really is how it's impacted people's lives and it's enabling others to fulfill their own potential isn't it which I guess the book is a culmination of that you know you've literally put it down on paper (laughs) how to do that so how did you first hear about the women of the future program and how have you been involved with them yeah so the women of the future program I actually met with Pinky Lilani several years ago This is when I was at Sodexo and I got Sodexo involved with them, both in the judging and it was a fabulous experience, but also, you know, we had put forward some women for the award. I attended the events. This is, of course, pre-COVID and just it was just extremely inspiring and to see and to witness the young women and what amazing lives and careers they have. Extremely inspiring. I've sort of since then connected other organizations to Women of the Future, and I think it's just very important to ensure that we have this next generation that has the spotlight. Absolutely. I have some quick fire questions for you just to Mm -hmm. finish. So let's go. What would you describe as your greatest success? I think my greatest success are having two absolutely wonderful daughters who give back to society. So one is actually uh, works in the criminal justice space and she works with death row inmates, works for a nonprofit called the MacArthur Justice Center. 
And my other daughter is a neurologist and works with underserved communities, particularly refugees. So I think having that sense of giving back to society, I think that's one big one. And the other would be the book that I've just written, Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, which is a reflection of my career and how we change the culture in a very large organization that enable people to really live their full potential. And what would you describe as your greatest failure? (laughs) My greatest failure would be that I just do not know work-life effectiveness means. (laughs) I struggle with it all the time. uh, The balance, you mean, getting the balance, yeah. The integration is just very difficult and I need to do a much better job of that. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all do. The mantra of Women of the Future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I think kindness and collaboration is basically about generosity of spirit. It's about the ability to see how you can support others, how you can lift others up, because ultimately all of that reflects back on you. But you do it because you want others to succeed. So, yeah, generosity of spirit. Is there anything that scares you? Um, What scares me? I think the polarization in society today is very scary. It's um, frightening. I would say the polarization in society today would be something that I'm afraid of. Very divisive. And what's left on your to-do list? (laughs) What's left on my (laughs) to-do list? A lot. I think it goes back to the failure piece, the work-life balance. I need—I mm. really want to carve out some space so I can focus on things like my health and yoga and reading and traveling. So I want to do that and continue to do what I can to diminish some of the polarization in society. So continue to work on that. It has been so lovely speaking to you. Thank you huge huge thanks to you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule the book leading global diversity equity and inclusion a guide for systemic change in multinational organizations it's out on the 30th of november is that globally so we can get it everywhere that's right yes fantastic so everyone should go get a copy it sounds absolutely brilliant and i will definitely be reading it thank you for your time thanks kim appreciate it Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.